Welcome to the Walking Lessons Podcast. In today's episode, Nate discusses the primal emotion that drives much of our faithless and destructive behavior, fear. And now, here's Nate Larkin. Here we are, we're talking and walking our way as Christians through the gospel, looking through the lens of the 12 steps. We're on step four, the fearless moral inventory test. Last week we talked about what most addicts agree is the number one offender. These hurtful memories that we find ourselves hanging on to, uh, treasuring, finding some comfort in, cultivating, and those, uh, and sometimes even unwillingly, we just can't get away from them. Those things that lock us into unhealthy patterns, anchor us to the past, and uh, add fuel to self-destructive behavior. And so I invited you last week to, uh, if you could do it, sit down at some time over the course of the week and see if you could write down a resentment list. I'm not going to ask anybody to read the resentment list, but I want to emphasize the point that it's not so, I'm not asking you to do any of this work so that you can fix it. That's not what this is about. This is not a self-improvement class. This is very much a confession stage. It's learning to look honestly at ourselves and allow the gospel to look at us, open ourselves to the light of the gospel, and to admit our imperfections and failings and rebellions and flaws, our brokenness, without feeling, without, first of all, without running and hiding in shame. And secondly, without feeling some compulsive, impulsive need to fix it now so that we can be okay and be accepted. I really don't think we can do this work without without being Christians, without having at least some embryonic understanding of the gospel, a belief in a loving God who knows us better than we know ourselves. I don't think we can do this work until we understand that what we put on that list or what we take off that list does not alter and cannot alter in any way uh, the way in which God loves us, sees us, values us. It doesn't change our standing with God in any way. We can't work our way up some ladder toward his approval by knocking sins off the list. And in fact, we won't even see progress until we learn to accept the fact that that sanctifying work is his to do, not ours that it's his spirit that does it, not ours. That when we do it by self-propulsion, that actually takes us in the wrong direction toward self-righteousness, an attempt at moral self-sufficiency. It takes us farther in the direction of Pharisaism and away from the Savior. So this really, it's a way to appreciate the gospel more as we take a look at how much I need a Savior today How deep the pit actually is that I have managed to dig for myself. And how um, I need a power greater than myself to give me a better life. So that's what this is about. And uh, we don't even begin to do this until we begin to feel a certain degree of safety. And that's why fear-based, shame-based religion actually locks us into self-destructive and sinful behavior. So anyway, so today we're going to talk about uh, fear. 
And if you are, if, if you ever uh, are in a 12-step program, you're working with a sponsor, you get to step four, odds are your sponsor, he or she is going to first of all suggest you do a resentment list. That'll be number one. And probably the second list you're going to be asked to put together would be a fear list. What are the things that you are afraid of? And uh, here's a reading that you'll often hear in 12-step meetings. Uh, it's a familiar passage to anybody who's been in 12-step recovery for a while. It comes from the big book, the chapter called How It Works, page 62, and it says this. Selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us, seemingly without provocation. But we invariably find that at some time in the past, we have made decisions based on self that placed us in a position to be hurt. And the phrase that stuck out to me right away, when the first time I heard that, was driven by a hundred forms of fear. And I have really come to recognize that, at least for me, so much of my sinful and self-destructive behavior and avoidant behavior is fear-based and fear-driven. And we can't even begin to, uh, sur we can't even surrender it to God until we admit that it's there, right? We can't ask Him to take away what we can't name. And this can be a frightening thing, to actually name what we're afraid of. Even the naming itself can be terrifying. I was raised in kind of this culture of machismo. There was this expectation at our house and the home I was raised in that guys, guys don't get scared. You know, the worst thing you could be called as a kid was a fraidy cat. And so I learned early on how not to appear afraid. You know, never let them see you sweat. And, in, and I, I don't think I was able to do that without, at some level, disabling the sensor, the fear sensor. So that uh, it's crazy enough, when, I, when my addictive behavior actually took root and got traction, I did very, very, very dangerous things and never felt appropriate fear. I went into dangerous neighborhoods. I did dangerous things with dangerous people. I risked a lot. I risked my reputation. I risked my, my, uh, I risked my job. I risked my marriage. I risked my health and the health of my wife. I took terrible risks, which if my fear mechanism, if my sensor had been connected, I wouldn't have done. Uh, fear is this uh, gift that God has given us. Had a great interview on the Pirate Monk podcast this week with the author of a new book coming out next uh, uh, in just a couple of weeks, and I highly recommend it. The author is John J. Thompson. The book is Jesus Bread and Chocolate, and he's uh, talking about the good things that God has given us. And this is a great line in the book where he says, "There's no good gift that God has given us that we are not capable of twisting into a pair of handcuffs." So we can abuse any good thing. Uh, the gift of fear is actually a good thing. It's, a, it's, it's essential to our survival. That's why God gave us the capacity to be afraid. Uh, and, a, and a healthy respect for God is essential to spiritual sanity. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, as Christians, we no longer have to fear His wrath. Is that true? His wrath has been poured out on His Son. 
he is not angry with us. But to lose our respect for the awesome power of a sovereign God is nothing short of insanity. And there are other things, of course, more tangible things, threats to our physical well-being that we do well to fear. I mean, when the tornado siren goes off, the sane thing to do is to seek shelter. The crazy thing to do is to get in your truck and drive toward the funnel, right? You know, we, we learn, uh, we teach our kids a healthy fear of traffic so that they don't just walk into the street, right? And if that has to initially be a fear of getting, uh, getting a, a spanking if I come too near the road, well, one fear in service of another is not a bad thing. But fear can become absolutely crippling. As I told you last week when my sponsor had me, you know, my first assignment was to build a resentment list and my initial reaction was I don't have any resentments because I'm a Christian and I'm morally superior and I forgive everybody. I mistook denial for forgiveness and thought that I didn't have any resentment. Come to find out, <laughs> I was toting a very huge load of resentments. And uh, I was getting back at everybody with my secret behavior. And not until I was able to admit those resentments and begin the process of forgiveness and healing was that need to get back at people secretly, finally, disconnected. I had the same reaction when he said, okay, now we've got to take a look at, uh, we've got to build a fear list. What are you afraid of? What do you mean, afraid? I'm not afraid of anything. I'm not afraid. Now, the truth is that I am deeply afraid, much less afraid now than I was 17 years ago, but still, fair, I, I can, you can trigger my fear pretty, pretty quickly. I'm afraid of a lot of things. I, it's in this way that I identify with Peter. You know, Peter was the, uh, the tough guy, the enforcer among the disciples. He was Jesus' self-appointed bodyguard, and Peter wasn't afraid of nothing, right? Remember, in the boat, in the storm, everybody else is terrified. They see Jesus walking across the water, and Peter... I mean, this is, this is what Peter does. It was part of his persona. It was how he saw himself and how he wanted to be seen. He has an audience. He has Jesus. He says, look, if you tell me to walk out there with you, I will. And Jesus says, okay, come on. And Peter did. And that really smells like courage. And there is some real courage there. No doubt about it. That night in the garden in Gethsemane, the night of the betrayal, Peter is probably the only one of the disciples who's packing. I mean, he's armed. He's, he brings a sword because he's Peter, right? And he immediately steps up to Jesus' physical defense and attacks the servant of the high priest and cuts off an ear because he's Peter. And so I'm sure that Peter, I, I, I imagine, dangerous to be sure of anything, but I imagine that in his own mind, Peter was fearless. He probably thought it was fear, which is why I'm sure it tortured him later to recall that only hours after rising to the physical defense of the Savior, when he was asked in privacy by a servant girl whether he was with the Galilean, he denied it. Not once, not twice, but three times. 
Why? What was he afraid of? Now to me, one of the beauties of that story is the only, there's only one way we could know that he did that because it happened when nobody else was around. I mean, the servant girl, I don't think, told. When it came time for Mark to write his gospel, Mark was very close to Peter, and what we get through Mark is Peter's account of, of uh, Jesus' ministry. And Mark's the first one to tell us about that, and then it comes through every place else, and then, do you know why we know? Because Peter told. There came a point in Peter's life where he didn't have to hide that fear any longer to protect his reputation as a tough guy. He found the courage to be who he really was, and that willingness to admit and express his vulnerability and his fear took him from being uh, bright and shiny to somebody who God could really use in ministry. I'm sure that it added to his credibility. That's one of the reasons we all love Peter. And he, it wasn't cured, by the way, uh, when he first recognized it. it but this, this thing stuck with him. It was a chronic thing. How do we know that? We know something that Paul says in his letter to the Galatians. Chapter 2, Paul says, you know, when Peter came to Antioch, I confronted him to his face because he was plainly in the wrong. He said, when Peter first came to Antioch, so understand that in Antioch, the gospel is spreading now among the Gentiles. Paul has received his commission as the apostle to the Gentiles. He's preaching the gospel. People are responding. And he understands very clearly that we're no longer under the law, that the law was the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that Christ has fulfilled the law, that it's a circumcision of the heart, not of the flesh. It's not required of a... You don't have to become a Jew to become a Christian that not all sons of Abraham are sons after the flesh, right? He understands that clearly. He's preaching it. And Peter understands it too. Peter himself was the one who'd received a vision from the Lord one night about clean and unclean animals, right? with the sheep, the animals that comes down from heaven, and God says, kill and eat. Peter was the one who said that the ritual law has been fulfilled. It's done away. We no longer have to fulfill it. We're not preaching that. We're not preaching ritual cleanliness. So when Peter comes to Antioch, Paul tells us, he's hanging out with the Gentiles, he's sharing meals with them, the kind of thing a good Jew wouldn't do. And it's wonderful, Paul says, until some people sent by James, some people from Jerusalem showed up, some of these Jewish Christians. And when they showed up, Paul says, Peter withdrew from us for fear of the party of the circumcision. He was afraid of, I don't know, I have my own theories. I get uh, congratulated a lot for my courage in talking as openly as I do about my sex addiction. I remember once stepping into an elevator at a convention and it was just me and some preacher. And you could tell he was a preacher by the way he was dressed. It was kind of like the denominational <laughs> uniform, you know? In this case, you know, pastels and the white shoes. And, uh, <laughs> and he said, I wish I had your balls. And, uh, and I felt compassion for the guy. And I said, man, you don't understand. It's not, it's not a lot of courage. I, got no, I don't have anything to lose, really. I don't have a pulpit to protect. You can't do what I just did. You have to be honest. But, And I understood that this guy, he's in a denomination that is publicly committed to 
the victorious Christian life and perfectionistic theology, there's absolutely no room for him to admit failure publicly, at least not within certain categories, and certainly not within this category. So he's, he's, he's got a church, he's got a job, he's got a family, he's got... What can he do? He's going to have to find a safe place, to be honest. So imagine, uh, you know, so I put myself back in Antioch and, and I look at Paul, and I thank God for Paul's reckless honesty. I love that Paul, in Romans 7, toward the end of his ministry, says, man, the thing I want to do, I can't do, and the thing I don't want to do, I can't stop doing. I love his transparency. But, but I appreciate the fact that Paul had some freedom that not everybody had. He was a single guy. He didn't have a family to support, wife to protect. He also uh, was self-employed. He, he had a way to make a living that was not tied in any way to his ministry. He could go to any city and set up shop as a tent maker and make a good living and employ some people and find a way to interact in the marketplace and just do his thing. Peter was in a different situation. Peter was in full-time ministry now, but unlike Paul, he couldn't take his vocation on the road. He was a fisherman. What was he going to do? I mean, he couldn't drag a boat around, right? And unlike Paul, Peter was married. And he even brought his wife with him. We know that. So he had a family support. He had a wife to consider. And he was dependent upon donors and supporters in order to feed his family and keep going. I imagine that among those fellows who came from Jerusalem were people who'd written him checks before, who might not write him checks again. Awfully tough when you got that much on the line, right? So maybe I'm projecting my own stuff. I do know one of the reasons that I jealously protect, one of the reasons why I haven't gone into, quote, full-time ministry by 86ing my little technical writing company is that I'm, I'm terrified of being dependent upon donors because I know how vulnerable I am to financial pressure. I'd rather have an independent income, thank you, so that I can say what I want. It's another reason why uh, there's no way I ever want to be hired again by a church because I'm afraid I'll change under the need. I don't know that I'm strong enough if there's a check on the line to say what needs to be said when it needs to be said. I admire those who can do it. I'm really not that person. Not yet. So today, for example, I know that uh, one of my biggest triggers is financial fear. I fear poverty. I don't know why. It's crazy, but I do. I fear poverty even though when Allie and I look back, the very best year of our marriage was a year we were flat broke. We had nothing. We we're living on food stamps. But I do. I do fear poverty. And I've got a lot of shame around money as well. In fact, I've got more shame around money than I do around my sexual behavior. I talked very honestly in groups for years about my sexual behavior and uh, sexual insanity while not mentioning my financial insanity. Because after all, the sex stuff is supposed to be every man's battle. But a real man, a Christian man, you know, is supposed to be able to be a good steward and handle his money responsibly. And, you know, and I live in the same town as Dave freaking Ramsey. And I'm, you know, and I'm not, I'm not Dave Ramsey. I'm not. Now, my financial fear does not manifest itself in 
miserliness or greediness. I'm not a tightwad because I'm afraid of losing it all. Um, what I tend to do in, in my financial fear is just not look at it, just dissociate, just kind of think magically about money. And that has not worked well for me. And it wasn't until uh, five years ago now that finally, through the help of guys in the Samson Society, when I finally started talking about it and talking about it and talking about it, that somebody said, you know, you could probably use help with this. Maybe you're not wired to do that as well as you want to do it. And maybe there's somebody else within this thing we call the body of Christ who is wired to do that and who can do that with you and for you. And they introduced me to somebody. And, and that was the first time I just kind of opened up, you know, dump out the box of stuff, and I really don't know how much I owe or where I am. I don't have books. I don't know. And to encounter grace from another Christian brother who is, uh, I mean, just so kind, who got into it with me, and who now, I mean, I, I, I pay him to do it, but I'm grateful to pay him to do it who sees that all the taxes get filed and all the bills get recorded and paid and we actually have books and we kind of look ahead and we know what's going on and my financial fear has dropped by about 95%. So wrapped up with that financial fear was shame about not being good financially. Which again, all tied into perfectionism. I've got to be great at everything and I cannot admit to anybody that I really suck at money because I might lose status. I built a persona for myself as a business person because I did have a business and I'm fairly good at making money, I'm just not good at handling it, right? And that can be a reckless combination. You can just pick up checks until there's nothing left. Okay, but I've got to admit that I still have a fear of poverty. And if I don't admit it, if I don't surrender it to God each day, if I'm not talking about it, that fear can drive insane avoidant behavior or self-destructive behavior. And I can torture myself with an unnecessary irrational fear. You know, I could, I'm not going to take you through my whole fear list, but I, uh, I fear aging. Not like I can do anything about aging, right? It's happening. But every time I have to search for a word uh, every time I forget a name. It's one of the reasons I like to do this, but now I have the fear that you've said your name and you're going to expect me to remember it and I'm not going to know it when you leave the room because it's going to take five weeks before I finally nail it. And it didn't used to be that way. Names and phone numbers. I used to... Facts! Now i got to... So, and I'm afraid of that. I'm, I'm afraid of drifting away into senility sometime and, and that horrifies me. I think this is a common fear, not talked about very often. I'm afraid of dying. I think it's kind of this low-level fear. Not really afraid of death, I don't think. I mean, I, I do believe, I'm certain, that this life is only prelude to life eternal. I'm really looking forward to that adventure. Everybody I've talked to, I do, I'm interested in near-death experiences, and everybody I've talked to who's had a near-death experience describes that final process of letting go and surrender and drifting away as the most pleasant they ever experienced. I'm kind of looking forward to that. It's what happens right before then, or maybe for weeks and months and years before then, that terrifies me. I'm grateful for what I don't fear today. I don't fear that I'm going to go to hell. 
I was raised on that fear. As I think I've told you, my father said many, many times, I, I serve God because I'm afraid not to. He did his best to instill that fear in his 10 kids, and it didn't take. We all kind of became immune to it or something. I don't know. It worked counter, but he couldn't scare us into right living. We all kind of went crazy. But uh, I'm grateful now not to just dissociate from that fear, but to have a firm grip on the gospel and to know that I am loved and that my eternal destiny is secure. I'm not afraid of God rejecting me. I'm grateful for that. I'm not afraid my wife will leave me. I was afraid of that for a very long time. It's one of the reasons that I, did, that I lied to her so much and that I hid the truth from everybody. I was afraid that if it ever came out, she was going to be gone. She's proven that fear to be groundless. Now, it's not without limits. She has told me there are certain places I could go that she wouldn't be able to handle, and I'm not inclined to go to those places. But I'm so grateful not to have that fear today. I'm not afraid of getting kicked out of this church because I talk about my own sin in the present tense. Do you know how lucky it is, how, how fortunate we are to be in this environment in church? But I remember, as I think I've told you, when I went to my first 12-step meeting, not going inside, just sitting in the car until 15 minutes after and then driving away, because I was afraid, here's what I was afraid of, I was afraid I would go into that church basement and see somebody I knew. And I hear that all the time from guys. Heard it again this week from a guy. That reluctance to go to the first meeting, it's an irrational fear, isn't it? I was afraid that in a meeting of sex addicts, I might meet another sex addict who knew me. He's going to think less of me for being there for the same reason he is? What's that? But it's a very, very common fear. And then learning over time that that was a safe place for me to talk honestly about not only what I had done, but what I was doing. Not where I'd been, but where I am. I remember you know, meeting with my sponsor early on, and he would continue to talk about his sin in the present tense in a way that I found somewhat disturbing. So he would talk about his previous week from time to just to get me to open up and what he was grateful for and what he'd done right and what he'd done wrong. It was that last one that kind of bothered me until I came to understand that that was the key to his freedom. He didn't have to pretend for me or for anybody else to have it all together. It's interesting to me that in the big book, and we're going to break here in just a minute, very interesting to me that in the big book, uh, this phrase, a hundred forms of fear, is contained in a paragraph that begins with, with talk about selfishness. It's a paragraph about selfishness that references fear. Selfishness and self-centeredness. And I think actually it belongs there because I've come to categorize fear as this. Fear is an obsessive self-concern. An obsessive self-concern. And the Bible makes it plain that there's really, there's one reliable antidote to fear. I know what it is? Not courage, love. Love. So John says, 1 John 4 verse 17, he says, there is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. Because, in a very real sense, love is fear's opposite. Fear is about me, what's going to happen to me. Love is about you, 
and what's going to happen to you. And the more I can think about you, the less I have to think about me. It's an, it's an old trick that I learned years ago in public speaking, and I've passed it along to those I've taught in public speaking. And I found, uh, I had to use it again just a few weeks ago. I was speaking at a conference in Seattle, and it wasn't a particularly big room. There were yeah, maybe five or 600 guys there. I've spoken to much larger crowds. I haven't experienced stage fright in a long time. But just sitting, all of a sudden, I felt this nervousness start to calm. And then this, oh, this, have you ever had stage fright? It's, yeah. And then I remembered. Rather than go off by myself and try to pull myself together, I did what I know works. And I stood up, I was in the room, I stood up and looked out at everybody. Not as a crowd, but as people. And I began to pray for them as people. God, I know that men didn't come here this morning out of idle curiosity. They're not here on a Saturday morning because they got nothing better to do. They're here because they need something. Life is hard. Lord, you know the heartbreak and the tragedy and the potential disaster that these guys are facing. You know the hurt in this room. You know what every man needs to hear. I don't. Please give me what these men need to hear for their sake, not for mine. And you know, as I did that, the fear went away because it wasn't about me anymore. And that is, you know, when, when we fall into an addiction of any kind, it becomes this ever-tightening downward spiral, this self-referential circle in which we disconnect from other people and then it just all becomes about us. And if we carry that, we try to carry that into recovery so that we turn recovery into nothing more than navel-gazing, then we can't break out of the gravitational pull of whatever it is we've been orbiting around. That only begins. And that's why in recovery, I found that my recovery, I, it was like a, like a two-stage, three-stage rocket. I definitely hit a new stage in my recovery and gained new momentum when I started sponsoring other guys. Even though I wasn't done yet. I'm just in the process. And that's why I love getting phone calls. I have to make a daily phone call to my guy, but I love getting phone calls. Because at least for two minutes listening to a message, it's not about me. At least for two minutes, it's about somebody else. And that works to my spiritual benefit. And it also tends to ratchet down the fear. So your suggested assignment for next week is to, uh, to make a fear list. Uh, we talked about what you were afraid of when you were a kid. Some of you mentioned those things that still hang on in adulthood. See if you can expand that. Again, don't, drop, don't, don't go to shame over it. Don't hide it. Don't deny it. Remember that you're a Christian. If anything, the more we see our depravity and brokenness and weakness and need of the gospel, the more our appreciation of the gospel grows, our joy grows, our, the Christian life actually brightens, the more we recognize we actually need the gospel and we have a Savior. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Walking Lessons Podcast. We want to hear from you. Please email your comment or question about today's lesson to walkinglessons at gmail.com 
or join the Walking Lessons page on Facebook. We'll see you next week.